We're going to sing one day before the lesson this morning. Let's sing all five verses, and then at the end we'll sing the chorus. And if you can, let's stand for this song, if it's convenient. Verse 1. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, his example is he. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain, one day they nailed him to die on the tree, suffering anguish, despised and rejected, bearing our sins, my Redeemer is he. One day they left him alone in the garden. One day they rested from suffering free. Angels came down o'er his tomb to keep vigil. Hope of the hopeless, my Savior is he. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone will away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now is ascended my sin evermore. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with its glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved ones bringing glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day he's coming, oh glorious day. Please be seated. Once again, good morning to everybody. Good to be together. And it's wonderful to have visitors with us today, and that's a blessing that we 
receive repeatedly. If you're here this morning, you are honored in our minds and you have honored us by being here. If you have any questions about anything you see us do or hear us say or teach, please ask us. We just try to be the Bible, uh, just try to be the church that we all read about in the Bible. Nothing more and nothing less. Hope you'll come back every time you have the opportunity. I appreciate Scott leading that song right before services, uh, right before the sermon this morning. I've entitled the lesson, Five Days of Jesus. Now, when we think about our worship to God, our song service, or that part of our worship that is singing, is primarily focused upon praising and glorifying God. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, the Hebrews writer wrote along this line, and certainly we might say, well, not every not what he said applies only to singing. We could talk about praising God in prayer as well. But he says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And as we have sung that song just a moment ago, we're praising God for his love for us. As we partook of the Lord's Supper, we were th remembering his love for us and praising him and glorifying him in the, in the sacrifice that he made by sending his son to that cross to die for us. But now, also, it's not just focused on praising God when we have our song service or that part of our worship where we're singing those praises and glories to God but it also focuses on speaking to and teaching and admonishing one another through the messages that are conveyed in the words of those songs. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul wrote along this line, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And in Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we sing praises to God. We worship him through the songs that we sing, but we also, because the words in those songs convey messages from God's word. We're speaking to one another. We're teaching one another. We're admonishing one another through those messages conveyed in those songs. Very important. Praise to God and speaking, teaching, and admonishing one another through the words of those songs. And God's not looking for perfect harmony, but simply he's looking for our praise, for our worship. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 98 and verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Some of us might say, that's about what my singing sounds like, a joyful noise, you know. And I can understand that. But see, there's the point. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. He's looking for sincerity. He wants us to praise him from the heart in the words of the songs that we sing. Now, I want us to analyze the magnificent message that is there in that particular song that we just sang. That song, that one song of worship, one day, points to five pivotal days in the life of Jesus, or the existence of Jesus. Five precious days from our perspective, 
Five precious days. One day, Jesus left heaven and came to earth, was born of a virgin in order to serve as our Savior. Those five verses of that song, each one point out one day. They highlight one day in the life and existence of Jesus that was so precious to us. And then as we sang that chorus right at the end, it blends all of those five days together in the chorus. So the first day, Jesus left heaven. He came to earth, was born of a virgin for the specific purpose of being our Savior, going to that cross and being the sacrifice that God sent him to be as our Savior, to pay the price for the guilt of our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 20, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They were not yet completely legally married. It's a different kind of custom than we're used to in our culture today in this country. But in essence, she was already committed to him. He noticed, obviously, that she was expectant with child. He thought that she had committed sexual immorality against him. And and so in his mind, he was contemplating putting her away, as the text says which would be basically the equivalent of divorce in our culture if they, were compl- if they were legally married. But while he's thinking about that, God intervenes and sends an angel to talk to Joseph in a dream. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And that name literally means Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, or be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us. And this is a reference to the prophecy by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. What a prophecy. And and God through the angel is telling Joseph, I'm fulfilling that prophecy now. It was made hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is the time for it to be fulfilled. So don't, don't have any questions about Mary's Uh, about Mary's purity and her, her dedication and commitment to you, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in coming to this earth, he gave up his place in heaven for a time. In Philippians chapter two, we get something of an idea. I don't think we can fully appreciate and even grasp what he gave up to come on that day, that one day when he left heaven and came to this earth to be our savior. Paul wrote, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Or maybe a better translation would be, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto. In other words, he was willing to leave his place in heaven to come and become man and be our savior, taking the form, uh, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in likeness of, of men, and being found in appearance as a man. 
He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbly gave up his position of equality with God in heaven to become man and be our savior. And in doing so, living that life as a human being, he was sinless. And he served as our example of righteousness before God, what we should look to try to, to emulate in our lives. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Boy, think about that. What does that first verse say in that song? One day, one day when sin was black as could be, we might think about our day today and say, boy, he certainly could come again right now if he had not come already because sin is as black as it could be right now, it would seem. But we look back through the history of mankind and we think about the days of Noah in, in Genesis chapter, chapter 5 where it talks about how the thoughts and intents of the, and the imaginations of the heart of mankind as a whole was only evil continually. So we have a problem, a sin problem. One day, Jesus left heaven and came to this earth to become human while still fully divine in order to be our savior. And then the second verse. One day, after he had lived upon this earth for about 33 years, one day, after he had gone through his public ministry pro proclaiming the gospel message of salvation, his being our savior, bringing that message of salvation from heaven, from the throne room in heaven, from God the Father, one day, as he had fulfilled that particular part of his purpose by be of, of being here, Roman soldiers led Jesus up the hill, or you might see it referred to as the mountain called Calvary, and there they crucified him. One day, at the instigation of the Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers took him and led him up that hill. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, and that was the Latin rendering for the name of that particular hill or mountain, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. We read further in John chapter 19 and verse 17, and he bearing his cross went out to a place, to, to a place called the place of a skull, and that was the Aramaic name for that particular hill and mountain, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. So Calvary in Latin, Golgotha in Hebrew, and the place of a skull, probably referring to some geologic feature that made the appearance on that mountainside or hillside that looked something like a skull. And so in Aramaic, it was called the place of a skull. That's where they led Jesus, and that's where they crucified him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, as I've said many times, an incredible verse of scripture that, that is, is awesome to me. I can't fully wrap my mind around what it must have been like for Jesus to be on that cross serving the purpose as a savior. Paul said, for he that is God made him Jesus, who knew no sin 
Remember, we read that in, in Peter. He said he is our example that we ought to strive to, to emulate, to, to, be a, to, to be an example of ourselves, who did no sin, never committed sin. The Hebrews writer talks about that as well in chapter 4. But here, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not to be sinful, not to become sinful, but God made him to be sin. What it must have been like, how repulsive it must have felt emotionally for Jesus the man, while still fully divine, to hang on that cross, be God the Son, live on this earth completely sinless, and have God in love for us lay all of the guilt of all of the sins of all mankind for all time upon Jesus's body while he hung on that cross. What an incredible sacrifice. What an incredible blessing. That was one day they led him up that hillside and they crucified him. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, the Hebrews writer wrote, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And in chapter 9 and verse 28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, many, yes, all mankind, forever. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. When he comes that next time, it's not going to be to go to the cross again. He's already been that sacrifice. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, Peter puts it succinctly. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. What a sacrifice. What a sacrifice God made. What a sacrifice Jesus was willing to be. And this is all in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy there. We'll just zero in on verses 5 and 6. When the prophet, God through that prophet, again hundreds and hundreds of years before, said, in prospect, as though it had already happened, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sins of us all. One day, one day they led him up that Calvary mountain and they crucified him between two thieves. One day they buried Jesus in a tomb that was in a garden nearby that particular crucifixion site. It was a convenient place and there was a brand new tomb that had never been used. One day they buried Jesus in a tomb, in a garden nearby. In John chapter 19, beginning with verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, 
In other words, being a secret follower of Jesus, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, another believer in Jesus, but again secretly, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. These are spices to prepare the dead body for burial. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where, they, where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish, Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. They buried Jesus in that tomb. They sealed it with a large stone and secured it with guards. In Matthew 27, beginning with 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And when he says he rolled a large stone, our understanding is that that was a massive stone that would be difficult for, for any one individual to move by themselves. And so there, behind that stone, stone, the tomb of Jesus was sealed. When we look a little bit further in that same chapter, beginning with verse 65, Pilate said to them, and this is to the Jewish leadership, because they were afraid that somebody would come and steal the body of Jesus because they knew that he had prophesied that he would arise on the third day. And so they went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, give us a guard to guard the tomb. And Pilate said, you have a guard. Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. That's what they did to try in their mind to guard against somebody stealing the body of Jesus and making it look like he arose from that grave. Well... They could not stop what was going to happen. Two angels sat at the tomb where Jesus lay. John chapter 20 and verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Oh, but Jesus' body was no longer there. One day, they buried him in that tomb. But then, just a few days later, one day, Jesus arose from that grave victorious over death. Oh, yes. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 1. On that third day, just as Jesus had foretold, Mary and the other Mary came to check on him, to check on where he was buried. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards, those Roman soldier guards, well, they shook for fear of him and they became like dead men. In other words, they fainted on the spot. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. 
as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. How that must have stunned those two ladies. Stunned, left them breathless perhaps, gave them hope, but astonishment at the same time. How could it be that he, we saw him die on that cross? We saw those nails go through his hands and his feet. We saw that Roman spear go into his side and the blood and water poured forth. We watched as they took him down and they led him away to that tomb. And they probably stood there and watched as the tomb was sealed. How could it be? But the angel said, he's not here. Don't look for him here. He is risen. He is risen victorious over death. As Peter preached on Pentecost just 50 days later to a massive crowd of Jewish men who had gathered there for that feast day, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, he said, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Oh, Peter's telling those Jewish men there in that day, you tried to silence the Son of God, the Savior sent from heaven. But you couldn't do it. You tried to shut his mouth by, by putting him on that cross and executing him in that cruel, barbarous way. But it didn't work. You put him in that tomb, sealed it up, put Roman guards in front of it. But God dealt with all of that. And he arose from that grave, from that tomb. God raised him. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, as as Luke was introducing this particular book in the Bible, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke says, let me tell you about this Jesus. Let me tell you about him after they crucified him, after they put him in that tomb, he rose from that grave, alive, victorious over death. And it wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't just something that somebody said they heard from somebody who said they heard from somebody else who said they thought they saw somebody who looked at like him at a distance. He said, no, he kept appearing, risen for 40 days after he arose from that grave. For 40 days. And then we look a little further in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, what was prophesied, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, as was prophesied, as Jesus prophesied himself, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, the apostle. Then by the 12, the rest of the apostles. And that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, 
but some have fallen asleep or died. Oh, it was no hoax. It was no wild rumor. It was no unrealistic supposition. Paul said he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the rest of the 12. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. And that's not all of those to whom Jesus appeared during those 40 days, risen from the grave. One day, he came forth from that tomb. And one day, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. That final day of judgment. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, as the apostles stood before Jesus, as he gave them their marching orders, as Mark records it in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who, is, who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. <clears throat> and as they stood there listening and still must have been in awe because... They knew he had died on that cross. But now they knew that he had risen. They had seen him probably numerous times over the past 40 days. And now they watched him ascend through the air in the clouds back to heaven. And I think we're to understand that suddenly there were two men in white who appeared. Who also said, men of Galilee, why stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Two more angels sent from God, obviously, to tell the apostles this is not the end. He's coming back. He's coming back. He will come back to bring the saved to heaven. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the, of, of, of the heavens to the other, one end of, the, of, of heaven to the other. We might say from one end of the earth to the other, or all around the globe, the saved are going to be called on that day. In John chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3, Jesus was speaking. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's talking to the apostles specifically here, but it's not just the message to them, it's to the message of all the saved, as we just read earlier, a moment ago. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Yes, Jesus is coming back. And we will all stand before him as our eternal judge on that day. Acts 17 and verse 31. Paul, teaching in Athens, said, Because he has appointed a day, that is, God has appointed a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by to all by raising him from the dead. And that man 
before whom we will stand on that day of judgment is Jesus himself. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will all stand there and give account. For the saved, this will be their most glorious day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, the dead in Christ, who died saved in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord in a place where the revelation tells us there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying, no more dying. Be with the Lord there, just as Jesus had told the apostles on the night of his betrayal. I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back so that you may be with me. He's coming back. But for the lost, for the lost, the unfaithful, the disobedient, that day will be their eternal condemnation in hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the message of salvation that God sent his son into this world to bring to mankind. But so many, they reject it or they just walk away from it. They don't want to hear about it. It will be their worst day ever and forever. Eternal condemnation in hell. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Five days of Jesus. Five pivotal days of Jesus. Five precious days of Jesus for the faithful. He left heaven to come to earth as our Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a tomb, sealed up, but he arose from that grave. And he's coming back. He's coming back. Where do you stand right now? in relation to these five days of Jesus. Are you ready for that fifth day to take place? Are you ready for him to come back and call you to stand before his judgment seat? To examine you as to how you've lived your life on this earth? Faithful or unfaithful? Obedient or disobedient? On the night of his betrayal again in John chapter 14 and verse 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you need to repent of your sins? 
Do you need to confess your faith in Jesus openly? Do you need to surrender to him in the waters of baptism? So the blood that he shed on that cross left heaven to go to that cross to do for you can be absolutely effective and cleanse you of the guilt of your sins as you're buried with him in those waters of baptism. Five precious, pivotal days. If you're not ready for that fifth day, the time to get ready is now. Won't you come as we stand together and sing?